Well, as we, as we continue to worship the Lord today and we look towards His Word, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. We're going to read together verses 18 through 25. Romans 8, 18 to 25. And I ask you to please stand as we read together Holy Scripture. This is God's holy word for us, his people. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, Hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Father, we ask that you would come now and send your Holy Spirit from heaven to bless not only the reading, but now especially the preaching of your word. By your Spirit, may you write your eternal truth upon our, hearts, upon our hearts and stamp the truth upon our souls and mark our lives today and in the coming days by this truth revealed in your Word today. Conform us this morning a little bit more into the image of Jesus Christ. Ripen us a little bit more today for heaven and prepare us for that wonderful glory that lies out ahead. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As I mentioned earlier in the pastoral prayer and as... Um, and as all of us are aware, we have many, many prayer needs, many, many people, either in our church directly or people that church members know very well who are in need, who are struggling, who need prayer, who need help, who need support in one way or another, all across the spectrum from big-time crisis all the way to, you know, not a, not a crisis, but still very important and still difficult to go through. All across the spectrum. 
And, you know, it was, I've been talking to a couple people, it's like, I, you know, I went home to North Carolina with Sarah for uh, over Christmas and New Year's, and, you know, it seemed like most things were fine. And we come back, and it's like, what happened? <laughs> the, all, all, all this stuff starts piling up, and I know it has nothing to do with whether I was here or not. It was going to happen regardless, so I, I'm irrelevant to the equation, but it's, it's, you know, it's kind of a hard turnaround to be like on vacation and then come back, and it's like a punch in the gut. You have all this, all these needs. And so I, I, I thought it would be appropriate just to, to take this Sunday, my first sermon of 2022, uh, to just talk about um, some things we need to remind ourselves of. Some important things that we need to remind ourselves of. Some basic truths of the Christian view of life in the world. Um, today is Epiphany Sunday. And you've all heard of the 12 days of Christmas, right? And that starts December 25th. There's the first one. January 5th is the 12th. And then January 6th, every year, is Epiphany. And the Sunday closest to Epiphany is Epiphany Sunday. So that's today. Epiphany commemorates the appearing, the sudden revelation of Jesus as God, King, and Savior of the world, not just Israel. And we look to the visit of the Magi in Matthew chapter 2 as sort of the paradigm example of that very first moment when the who Jesus is as God, King, Savior for all nations is revealed to non-Jews. You know, the Magi come from the east. They're not Israelites. They're not Jews. And they see the star and they come to find Jesus. And this is a beautiful picture of God shining a heavenly light to those who are dwelling in darkness. The nations. And with that light, He leads them to Christ. And this is, this is this picture of Epiphany when it's, all of a sudden, the star appears, the lights go on, the king is here, we must go to him. And this is God drawing the nations to himself. These Gentile visitors are led by God's light from this heavenly star. They come to see Jesus and they see him and they worship him and they give him their treasures as tribute and they bow their knee to him as king. The nations are already beginning to come to Christ. That's at the heart of what Epiphany is all about. And in connection with this theme of having an Epiphany, uh, there are three things that we need to realize, three Epiphanies we need to have in light of the coming of Christ as our Savior and our King. And these three things I want to talk about, these three things we should realize, are here in Romans chapter 8. And the first is this. Point one, we live in a groaning world. A groaning world. Look at verses 20 through 22. Paul says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God, For we know that the whole creation has been, here's our word, groaning together in the pains of childbirth 
until now. A groaning world, the whole creation together, all of its pieces, all of its parts, the whole of creation is groaning. And it's because we live in a fallen world. A fallen world. If there's any doctrine in the Bible that even the most hardened atheist would be prone to accept, it's how, <laughs> how the world groans and how it is fallen. Something is terribly wrong and rotten at the center of the world. And we all know that and sense that, even if we have different worldviews and religions that try to explain it in all sorts of different and incompatible ways. A Christian view of life in the world tries to account for this big ultimate question, this basic question, what is wrong with this world and what is wrong with us? And the answer is we live in a fallen world. And normally when we talk about a fallen world, we think about the sinfulness of the world, right? We talk about humanity is fallen into sin and we're under God's curse and the world is lost. Now that's absolutely vital and true. That's definitely what a fallen world means. But Paul isn't really focusing on how sinful humanity is. He's talking about not just the sinfulness of the world. He's mainly focused here on the misery of the world. We don't just live in a sinful world. We live in a painful world, a groaning world, a struggling world, a world that's under God's curse because of Adam's sin in the beginning. In Reformed theology, we talk about we try to give definitions to a lot of things. So we try to say, what is the fallen state of the world? What, how would you define the fallen state of the world? And in our confessional documents, we define that as the state of sin and misery. The state of sin and misery. There is a sinfulness about our state as fallen creatures in a fallen world. And then there is a miserable, a misery component. There's a moral problem and then there's just a natural problem with the world. The state of sin and misery. Paul is here really focused on, the rest of the book he's really all about the sinfulness of our state. But here he's talking about the misery of our state. And notice this language he uses. The creation was subjected to futility. Creation was subjected to futility. Verse 20. And you think, what is futility? The first thing that comes to my mind is the writer in Ecclesiastes who says, vanity, vanity, everything is just vanity. It's meaningless. It's stupid. <laughs> it's pointless. There's no higher purpose. And you know, from our limited human perspective, as we go through stuff in life, it really does feel sometimes like things are just futile. Like, what is the point? Why is this thing happening and that thing happening, either in my life or my house or my world, my community, my, my neighborhood? Things feel, feel futile. And you have people who, who make plans and they don't work out. Or people who have good intentions and things fall apart and things go wrong. And try as you may, you couldn't fix it. You couldn't help that person. You couldn't salvage that relationship. You couldn't get out of that debt. You couldn't fix that marriage. You couldn't... And just 
things falling apart and it sometimes it's like it doesn't matter how hard you try it's just it feels like what's the point of trying because I can't do anything about it try as I may there's a futility of our plans our relationships things that we try to do try to accomplish there's just this futility that just rests over so many things that we try to do that's called subjection. We're being pressed down in subjection underneath this weight called futility in the world. In verse 21, Paul speaks of the bondage to corruption. Now, normally when we say corruption, we think about moral corruption. Like that's a corrupt business. That's a corrupt politician. But he doesn't mean corruption in the moral sense. This isn't the sinfulness, this is the misery part of our fallen state. Here, corruption means decay. Things breaking down. Things falling apart. You know, you order a new, you know, your, a new gizmo or gadget or appliance from Amazon and it, and it arrives the next day because you have Amazon Prime and, and the box is half crushed on one side and you think, okay, great. Futility. <laughs> corruption. <laughs> No one, in the, no one in the post office cares, apparently. You know, or the box looks nice. You open it up, and it's defective. It's broke. It's missing half. And you're like, you know, or you call to get somebody to come out and fix something, and, uh, and they don't know what you're talking about, or they just say, well, it's going to be next Thursday, a month from now. That's like, well, you couldn't come sooner? No, we can't. That's our policy. <laughs> and you just think, well, <laughs> nobody can do anything. Why is it so hard to just get basic things done? Get somebody to fix this or, or, or buy something that works or get somebody who can do their job or get somebody on customer service who understands what in the world I'm talking about. And it just feels like things break down, things don't work, futility, futility, decay. <laughs> you know, I bought a new coat, or Sarah got me a new coat a couple years and then I put it on and like as soon as I put it on, like I did something weird with this arm and like half of it rips right here. And it's just like, what's the point? <laughs> Why try to have anything nice? And, and does life, I mean, do you not feel like that sometimes? That life just one punch after another? That's just sort of gadgets and, and situations that break down. But so many other things break down. And, and specifically here, Paul is having in mind the physical and material decomposition of everything. That our own bodies ache and break, that our own selves deteriorate, that we can have the best exercise regimen and the best diet and, and, and go to the doctor and take care of ourselves as best we can and have a good, healthy life. But at some point, that stuff all breaks down. And eventually, Paul has in mind here that it ends in death. That somehow entropy sets in, the universe is crumbling down and winding down, and corruption has us in bondage, he says. We can't escape it. In verse 22, he concludes this thought by saying that the whole creation groans. There's this misery that it feels. There's this agony that it feels. And he's personifying the universe as like a person who is, he, he actually personifies the whole cosmos as a woman in labor experiencing the pains of childbirth in verse 22. Creation is groaning. That's the first thing we need 
to have an epiphany about, to realize. Now, it's not a hard one. Most of us are, are intimately familiar with this. But it leads now to the second point, and this is really the, most, uh, the more important of the, of the first two points here. The world is groaning, and point two, there are no exceptions. There are no exceptions. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, Christians, we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. It's not just that that world out there and those unbelievers are groaning and we are safe and immune and protected and we just have no problems because we're Christians. No, Christians are not exempt from the groaning. We also groan under futility, under corruption, under pain. We ourselves, Paul says, even though we have the Holy Spirit, even though we're born again, even though we're Christians, we still groan inwardly. Our fallen state is the state of sin and misery. And if you believe in Christ, if you've come to Jesus and you have faith in the gospel and you've been saved and born again and justified, God has saved you from the sinfulness of our fallen state. And He is currently ongoing sanctifying you from that sinfulness. Purifying you from the sinfulness of our fallen state. But that misery piece, we're still under that one. We still groan inwardly. Deliverance from that is something that's off in the future. The gospel doesn't give you immunity from suffering. And this is a point that I think we, 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 I think we understand it. But then, the, but then the way we go through and the way we complain about the things we face in life betrays that we have problems believing it consistently. Because somehow, and this isn't just Christians, all religious people do this, all different kinds of religious people, but, but let's just focus on us. We think that if I follow Jesus, He will protect me from ever going through something bad. If I live obediently and I try to tithe and I, and I serve on a committee and if I go to church and I'm, you know, try to do, be a good person and do the best I can and read my Bible and I just try to be a good Christian, then God will surely prevent anything bad coming into my life. If I do so much for Him, surely He'll do this for me. And we, and we, and we don't say it like that. But we imply it when we say things like, how could God let this happen to me? And the question we have to ask ourselves is, who am I? Who do I think I am when I say that? How could God let this happen to me? Me, capital M. <laughs> We've slipped into this, I'm being good, God, so you owe me. You owe, if I'm going to serve you and be faithful and obedient, you owe me not to let me get cancer. You owe it to me not to let me uh, get sick. You owe it to me 
to protect me from that car accident. You owe it to me to keep my kids from breaking their arm or walking away from the faith. You owe me, you owe me, you owe me. Look at me, I'm living for you. Why can't you... We have to realize that faith and obedience as a Christian are not the lucky rabbit's foot in our pocket that keeps away bad juju, that, that protects us from bad karma or any of this superstitious stuff. It's not the good luck charm. It's not the garlic around your neck that keeps the vampires away or whatever. You know, fill in the blank with your own example. But it's not that kind of thing. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't protect Christians. I'm not saying that, you know, God never does anything to protect you. No, every time that you get in your car and you go to work, come back, or go to church and come back, go out to eat and come, and you, get, and you go there and back safely... That's God protecting you on the highway from all those crazy people. And maybe that's God protecting them from you. <laughs> if you're not a good driver. Right? So, God absolutely protects us all the time from all kinds of things. And, and, and in the previous point about how the world is groaning and everything's bondage and futility, it's not only that, is it? I mean... There are 10,000 beautiful, wonderful, good, glorious things about God's great creation that he's given us. And that's because we're not just under a common curse that pervades everything. God gives us his common grace to balance that curse out. So we're living in a swirl and a mix of common grace and common curse. Where curse keeps trying to consume us and grace just keeps limiting it and constraining it and keeping it from just wiping us out completely. And it makes it possible, God makes it possible in his common grace for us to have friends and good lives and go out to eat and have a good time and enjoy good weather and, and he just he makes all the good things in life possible for all of us, believer or not. Jesus says he makes his sun rise upon the good and the evil. Common grace is there. All that good stuff is there. But the creeping corruption just keeps coming. And here in our own Christian lives, it's not like you know, God never protects us from anything. No, of course not. He obviously protects us from all kinds of things. But he never promised you, Christian. He never promised that he will always protect you from every single thing that could ever happen that's bad. And there's no such promise in the Bible for that. We're not, we don't believe in a prosperity gospel. We believe in a realistic, biblical gospel. And here's the point I want you to take away from this, this portion of the sermon. Remember... Faith doesn't get you out of suffering. It gets you through suffering. We need to realize that God does not promise us as Christians exemptions from suffering. He does promise to be with us in the midst of suffering. He does promise 
to work all things for our good. And he does promise to bring good out of our suffering. And he does promise resurrection in the end. And he does promise future glory that is beyond compare. And that takes us to our third and final point this morning. The glory that is to come is beyond compare with the groaning we go through now. In verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We are waiting for an epiphany of future glory. The glory that will be revealed, unveiled to us. Right now we suffer. Right now we groan. Right now we still deal with the misery. Right now we still have to face the futility and the corruption and the bondage and the subjection and the pain and the groan. Right now we go through that, not constantly, obviously, but it's still, it's still there. We're not immune from tragedy and horror and all sorts of things. What we are waiting for is not that God will magically make the suffering stop. What we are waiting for is that future glory that's coming our way. That's where the Christian is looking. And what is that future glory he mentions here that's going to be revealed to us? That end times, last day epiphany that's coming? He says in verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait for what? As we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, and then he explains what he means by adoption, the redemption of our bodies. The redemption of our bodies. Our souls have been saved, justified, and have been freed from the sin The sinfulness of our sinful state, of our fallen state. Our bodies aren't free from the misery piece yet, but one day they will be. Not just the soul, but the body as well. When the whole person, body and soul, in totality, will be redeemed. Redeemed. And that is the resurrection of our bodies. When we are raised up to glorious bodies that cannot groan, that are immune, truly immune forever from the bondage to decay, from the futility, from the groaning. There is only rejoicing in these redeemed bodies, not groaning. And then Paul says this, he says that creation itself is also waiting for its own epiphany. In verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing, just like we do. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing, there's your epiphany word, of the sons of God. Creation can't wait to see the redemption of our bodies. Do you know what that means? That means creation is so sick of our corpses being inside of it. It cannot wait to get these graves open and push these bodies out that do not belong there. To do for all of us what God did for Jesus when he raised him from the dead. 
Creation wants all the stones rolled away and all the bodies to come out and all the tombs to be empty. We don't belong there. That's not what we were made for. It cannot wait for us to be revealed. For our wonderful cemetery to just be useless because it's empty. And in the new heavens and new earth, it can be, I don't know, a ball field, whatever you want. <laughs> Something more fun than a cemetery. We won't need them. Creation can't wait to push these sons of God out into those redeemed bodies. No more groaning, no more tears, no more pain, no more subjection. Just glory. That's what's coming. And it can't wait for that day. It can't wait. And this, I think, is behind Paul's metaphor of the cosmos as this woman in labor pain in verse 23. Or verse 22. The whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The, the old creation in bondage and futility can't wait to give birth to the new heavens and the new earth. A new glorious creation is coming to birth. And it began with the resurrection of Jesus. The first fruits of the new heavens and new earth. In the middle of history. And he will usher in the full new heavens and new earth when he comes again. And he raises us from the dead. And he breaks the last vestiges of the curse from this world. That bondage to corruption will be over. That futility ended. That groaning ceased. When Jesus comes to make all things new, as he began to do upon his cross and in his tomb and in his resurrection. That's the glory that's coming. And that glory is going to be so far beyond comparing to the groaning and the suffering that we have now. And oh my goodness, it doesn't feel like that sometimes when you're right in the middle of it and your heart is breaking. And everything around you feels so shaky and uncertain. And our faith becomes weak. We feel the enemy trying to tempt us away from trusting these promises. And faith needs something solid to hold on to. That's why we have the scriptures. It's why we have the church. It's why we have each other. It's why we have the sacraments. It's what God has given us as these handles that we can hold on to. And we can cling to something touchable, visible, that we can cling to for hope. Creation will bring forth a new heavens and a new earth and a world that's free from the fall. Now I mentioned that the fallen state is the state of sin and misery. And for Christians, we're being saved from that sinfulness peace. We haven't been liberated from the misery peace. But because we've been saved, now we don't experience the misery part of our fallen condition the same way a non-believer does. Being saved from sin and knowing Christ transforms that misery peace for the Christian into something totally different. Now it still hurts, it's still misery, it's still pain, it's still groaning. It doesn't doesn't take away pain. But what it does is it changes how you experience it entirely. 
Now you no longer grieve as those who have no hope. Now you look at this misery and you see it as full of promise and full of hope. And you know that every moment of pain you endure here below is just adding another ounce to that weight of glory that is yours in the future. At the end of our passage in verses 24 and 25, Paul talks about this hope that we have. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. In this hope of being freed from the misery part of our fall. In this hope we've been saved from the sinful part of the fall. In this hope we have we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, he says, for who hopes for what he sees? We don't see our salvation from the misery of the fall yet. That's in the future. That's part of the thing we're hoping for. In verse 25, he ends by saying, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We wait for it with patience. The hope we have teaches us patience. The hope that we have teaches us serenity in the midst of the swirling confusion. It teaches us courage. It teaches us steadfastness. All the things that go along with patience, all the fruit of the Spirit comes along with it. Now we are saved, we have this hope, and we wait for it eagerly but patiently. We can't wait for heaven, we can't wait for the resurrection, but we endure patiently. And for now, we have this hope to sustain us. And we didn't read it as part of our scripture reading, but in the next verse he says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with what? Groanings. The Spirit is with us to groan alongside of us. We are groaning. The Spirit comes alongside of us when we don't even know how to make an articulate sound in prayer. It hurts so bad or it's so bewildering. But the Spirit intercedes for us and teaches us to pray as we ought. Or if we can't say the words, the Spirit is able to, as, as I had one professor in, in seminary say, the Spirit thankfully edits our prayers <laughs> so that by the time they get up to God, they, they sound correct. <laughs> Even if we don't say them the right way. The Spirit helps us pray. He intercedes for us. He helps us in our weakness. And we have the promise of verse 28. That for those who love God. All things work together for good. All things work together for good. So now we see misery. As this servant of ours. That is helping to sanctify us. And that is helping us to gain more glory in the future. It transforms how we experience it. So let me conclude with this. These are some important truths that we need to realize. Some important epiphanies that we need to remind ourselves of. As we face a new year in a world that continues every day to make less and less sense than it did in 2019. What a foreign country 2019 was compared to today. And things as they continue to be uncertain, we need to remind ourselves of a Christian view of life in the world, a Christian world and life view that tells us we know what's wrong, we know what the remedy is, and we know how to 
lead by example as we face our own share of the, of the uncertainty and the suffering as Christ faced his suffering to glorify him. And we display a kind of patience and hope as we bear up under our crosses and our losses that God calls us to in a way that staggers the unconverted mind. There is an unshakable hope in Christ, Christian. And it gives us confidence, and it carries us through, and it teaches us the trust and patience that we need to endure. And one final thought, it also means that you and I have a job to do. We must band together and stand together and live together and disciple one another through life together as a church family. The days of, of Lone Ranger Christianity and I can just have my Bible and I don't need other Christians, that's, forget that. That, that. that was never true and if there was a time when that was popular, it's not popular at the Forks anymore. Forget it. We are going to be together in any way that we can. We need to see the inside of each other's homes. We need to be together to do this thing called enduring with patience together. Because I don't have patience all by myself. I need, to, I need a faithful brother or sister to help me walk through these things. You need your fellow Christians to help you walk through 2022. And if next year is even crazier, then you'll need them then too. And guess what it will be? <laughs> We need each other. We have a job to do to make sure that each of us remembers these things. That we keep hoping together. We keep being patient together. We stay focused on the promises. We cling to the gospel. We don't lose faith when we go through hardship. We don't think we're entitled to something from God. And we need each other to, re to remind us of these things. To hold us accountable and hold us up. And support us as we go through the groanings together. And that takes discipleship. That takes us helping each other and being with each other consistently. And so, Forks, we have a job to do. To believe these things, to practice these things, to live these things out, and to support and mutually care for and encourage one another to keep walking together straight ahead as we journey on to our heavenly inheritance together. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the power of your word, your inspired, almighty, revealed scriptures, and the, and the important vital truths about the gospel about the world, about your ways in the world, about the hope that we have as Christians. We thank you for revealing these things to us and give us something solid to base our faith on. It's not just some wish or some vain opinion that a few religious people have. This is the very revealed truth that you have given us from heaven about yourself and about who we are in Christ and what hope we have in Christ. And I pray that you would write these truths upon our hearts, remind us of these things, keep us sensitive to our sin, keep us humble, and draw us to get, knit our hearts together as a body here at the Forks so that we will 
continue in the ways that we've gone that are strong and that we will correct those things that are weak and that we will grow strong and vibrant together. Deepen our affections for each other and deepen our love for one another. Make us excited about our church and rekindle in us that eager longing for that future glory that's out in front of us. And may it sweeten all of our trials as we stand together and believe and confess it is true. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.